Have you ever wanted to be the first to know if aliens really exist? Well, with Nebula, you can be! Nebula is the streaming service that's home to its Probably Not Aliens, as well as our YouTube channels. And the best part? All of our content goes up early on Nebula. So when we break first contact with E.T., you'll be the first to find out. That's right, you'll be able to listen to the next episode of this show before anyone else. Plus, we post bonus content that you won't find any other place. And the best part? By signing up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash probablynotaliens, you're directly supporting the show and both of us. So don't wait any longer. Join Nebula today and be the first to know if this time it really is aliens. Tristan, I gotta tell you something. We record these episodes around dinner time. I'm a little hungry. Oh no! You know, I'm. Oh wow, god! I'm I'm pretty hungry, and I don't know what to eat. I mean, I've got all these choices that I could dive into, but what? I wish there was like a food that I could survive on that and nothing else, and that was like readily available to me through mystical means. You know what I mean? Oh, Soylent. Soylent. That is exactly what I was trying to get there. I was thinking of the word. You got it. This episode is sponsored by Soylent. It's not. Um, <laughs> we're not sponsored by anybody. But much like, I, I don't quote me on this, but I actually do think Soylent is made with algae. So that kind of oh, comes full circle to this discussion today fascinating i'm learning a lot maybe i'm learning a lot of secondhand knowledge that may or may not be true um yeah check on that one i remember that i bought soylent a couple times because i wanted to try it and then they banned it in canada for like three years why did Um, they ban it it has to do with um, Canadian regulations on what considers what's considered a meal replacement and what kind of nutrition you need to put into it. So any of these like meal replacement mm. things are all having trouble with uh, regulations in Canada. Okay, it's a boring reason, not like it was full of rats. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But did they test for rats, though? That's the question. Maybe that could still come out. The rat levels were within acceptable parameters. Gotcha. Only two to three rats per swallow. Yeah. Turns out rats are a good source of protein. Anyways, um, this is a podcast called It's Probably Not Aliens. Oh my gosh, we're recording. Yes, welcome to It's Probably Not Aliens, a show where we uh, talk about ancient astronaut theories and uh, conspiracies and ideas from history while learning a lot about ancient civilizations and very interesting places around the world. Is if I think that's a succinct enough way to put it. Uh, my name is Scott Nicewander. I know nothing. I do not do any research before this show happens because that is all the work of my good friend over there. Yeah, hi, I'm Tristan Johnson, the host of a channel. And I also do a lot, uh, way too much reading about extremely esoteric topics for these uh, episodes. Although I will mention that when we brought up, when I brought up that I was doing this particularly wacky subject, you actually knew a little bit about this when I did not. Yeah. Uh, so I watched a couple episodes of, of Ancient Aliens that 
had mentioned this. And so I think this was one of the topics where we were first starting out doing the podcast. Like, what do we want to talk about? What are the topics that we want to talk about? And this one just hit me as a really, really interesting idea. Uh, this idea of we're talking about mana today. Mm-hmm. And do, do you want to give a, a little uh, brief overview of what mana is for people who do not know? Uh, sure. So I will preface this by saying that I'm not Christian. I'm not Jewish. I wasn't raised in either of those religious traditions. So uh, this is all from my own research. So mana, so there's a period in Exodus after the fire tornado and the parting of the Red Sea that involves living in the, the desert for 40 years. And essentially, with a whole bunch of caveats that we'll get into in the, in the episode, uh, they survive because God rained down something called manna, which is sort of like food from heaven that would rot in a single day. Mm-hmm. So you had to eat it all right away. And like, no matter how hard you worked or how little you worked, you would get just enough manna to feed you and your family for one day. Two days if it's the day before the Sabbath. Yeah, it's manna is the original superfood, I think. <laughs> and I remember I I was raised a uh, Christian. So I remember learning about this a lot in Sunday school. And I, do, I, I think manna is supposed to be depicted as a kind of baked good that fell from the sky. That could be wrong, but like, that's how my head has always interpreted it. Something about the word manna makes me feel like, yes, it's like pancakes falling from the sky. Of course it is. I don't know if there are more official descriptions of that, but that is, that's what my mind conjures up. Well, we get into that because it's actually kind of interesting because manna was described as a bunch of different things. And a lot of its description is how it smells and tastes, but there isn't Mm. a lot of description about what it actually looks like. And so there's like, you know, paintings and depictions of it, but it's like, you know, it's just usually like white circles. That's yeah, that that's probably why I picture pancakes. White yeah. circles are like very undercooked pancakes. Uh, but I believe the episode of Ancient Aliens tried to posit the idea that it may have been some sort of as we as you were talking about some sort of algae uh, based food. Oh, yeah, guys, this is this is a fun one. I will even give you a preface for everybody uh, from the last two episodes. This one contains uh, no colonization, no uh, horrible, dark commentary about the oppressions of this world. This is just pure fun. Uh, We get into some pure science fiction nonsense. Let me ask you this, though. How many tourists come in and ruin something? Nothing at all. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah, this is a good one. This is this is the this is the happy one, which is very unlike my typical content. So this is good. The one happy episode of this podcast. Yeah, it's like that episode of Doctor Who. Just like nobody dies. Yeah, (laughs) just this once. Everybody lives. (laughs) Um. So the idea is that the Jews survived 40 years wandering the wilderness eating manna. And that manna is made by a machine that takes water out of the atmosphere and the warmth from a nuclear reactor, typically contained Mm. in the Ark of the Covenant... Yep. Uh, <laughs> this gets real fun. <laughs> that and one gets so, it gets me every time when I think about it. The Ark of the Covenant's nuclear reactor. I love it. Yeah. yeah. That'll be, a no, that'll probably be its own episode at some point. Yes, um, please. But then the, so the nuclear Ark of the Covenant and water taken out of the air combines together to make this sort of algae that would then be baked into some sort of thing that was then the food supply for the Jewish people for the entire time they were wandering the desert. And that's how they can live in one of the most deserty deserts on earth for 40 years. Just living 
off that good, good manna. Mm-hmm. So did Israel or did ancient Jews survive the Exodus in their time in the wilderness with helps from a nuclear powered algae replicator? I think history is on our side. I think yes. Yeah. Prove prove it wrong. It's going to be your job over this episode to prove it wrong because this idea is so good that I want to believe that it's true. Yeah, this so one you sounds to, real fun. You have to make me doubt in a significant way because I want this to be true so bad. Yeah, so you could take this either way. Ancient aliens people say this is proof that aliens gave this advanced technology and some people who are kind of more on the, we, we kind of like cross over these a lot, the, these strains of pseudo-archaeology. Some are into, this is advanced technology, therefore aliens were here. But also there's people who just make the claim that we had very advanced technology in the past and we just kind of forgotten about it. Mm. And this hits both of their fancies. It brings up a very common science fiction trope of the whole Arthur C. Clarke, uh, you know, sophistic- yeah. sufficiently advanced technology being indistinguishable from magic. So yes. very common science fiction stories. So, you know, it fits everything. So looking into the origins of the mana machine, which is like sort of the nickname that uh, this theory has been given. Oh, the mana machine. That's cute. And it's based on a uh, 1978 book by the same name that is, uh, unfortunately, I've tried to for this, but it is um, very long out of print. And so actually finding <sighs> copies of it is very difficult now. Oh, hey, listeners, if you have a copy, send one to us. We don't have a P.O. box because Tristan and I live in totally radically different locations. Some would say different countries. For now, we'll see how long the fresh water lasts. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. But yeah, we'll just tweet me a PDF a delicious PDF of this book, please, if you have it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. This book was written by two uh, British authors, a guy named Rodney Dale and another guy named George Sassoon. Rodney Dale is sort of like a pretty prolific editor, author, publisher who mostly had a career interest in urban legends and myths and stuff like that. And his writing partner, George Sassoon, who I'm guessing was more of like the, the academic end of this, is a, an electronics engineer, but also had a pretty big hobby in linguists, linguistics spoke uh, Serbo-Croat, spoke Hebrew, spoke Aramaic, and Klingon, which gives us some ancient aliens cred. <laughs> I love that that's notable enough that it is a detail that you can easily find about this person's life. Yep. And much like one of uh, Scott's D&D characters, he did two things in his life, which would investigate extraterrestrial phenomenon and help his mother run a sheep farm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's not unlike good old Coach Tucker from Late to the Party. Shout out to another podcast. There you go. But in the late 70s, he published three books that were about his theories on extraterrestrials. And he was a regular speaker at UFO conventions in the late 70s. Uh, Both of these men have since passed away. If I remember um, Rodney Dale passing away in 2020 and Sassoon uh, like in 2006, so uh, we're not ruining anybody's lives with this epic takedown. No, we sure are not. But uh, yeah, they wrote this whole thing about how uh, they did some translations of a specific book, not the Bible, but a specific book that we'll get into a bit. Okay. Uh, that the, That by reading this, they realized through translations that there was obviously a machine that drew moisture from the air and was able to get food, nuclear reactor, all that kind of stuff. This is all that all that theory was laid out in the 1978 book. And then they also made the theory that every seven days, the machine had to be taken apart and cleaned. And that is why Jews uh, observe the Sabbath. Oh, because this machine 
Well, I, I imagine if you're generating so much algae, you know, things are going to get gummed up. You know, you gotta, you gotta take it out. You gotta scrub it a whole bunch. My cats have a water, like a, a water fountain feeder. And that gets all sorts. If I don't clean that for a month, cause I forget that gets all sorts of green plant life all over it that I got to then scrub out of it and, and repair with, with some, some fresh water. So mm-hmm. that makes sense to me. If we, if I still have to do that in 2021, I believe that they have to clean this very real mana machine. Yeah. Do keep in mind that when we're talking about algae, we are talking about literal pond scum. Yeah. Although this this does kind of move aside the fact that Jews have been observing the Exodus since, or have been observing the Sabbath since long before the Exodus. Yeah. Okay. But that's a different thing. So yeah, that probably that part of the theory doesn't. All right. You know what? I'll give you that one. You've knocked that peg out of the theory, but I still think the rest <laughs> of it holds up, sir. So prove me wrong. Oh, okay. Well, let's start with actually like what mana is i talked about it a little bit but um yeah according to the bible it's an edible substance uh very descriptive that the <laughs> israelites ate during their travel during the 40 years of the exodus uh and prior to the conquest of canaan it's also mentioned three times in the quran so you know uh, abrahamic stuff and that during their desert times during that 40 years they ate nothing but manna and this is another fun one that i found very fun while doing the research because it instantly went to this is like one of the first topics that came up which is that because it is so pure and so natural that manna has uh is supernatural it's not of this earth so it sustains mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. without being physical being sort of ephemeral which means that uh and i'm gonna get a blue here that means that for the entire 40 years nobody pooped because it would get no waste <laughs> this is something that uh some people put a lot of brain power yeah. into that they determined that of course because that it is sense. of heaven you can't you can't poop heaven you can't do it you can't poop out heaven you can't poop out heaven Tristan. <laughs> i think we've established that I've, everyone knows that yep so that's fun and also i learned that there is a branch of Christianity that are literally called Christian vegetarians. I'd have okay, their own, this is new to me. Yeah, it's sort of this own its own little kind of philosophical strain that uh, basically believes that God does not intend for humans to eat meat because uh, plants cannot move and killing them would not be sinful. And so they point to manna being non-meat uh, as part of their support for their theory that, you know, God intends for Christians to not eat meat. I, I'm going to have to push back a little bit on the plants don't move part because plants definitely move they just do so extremely slowly yeah like a plant if the if the sun's shining a plant's gonna bend itself towards that sun you know what i mean like plants move yep and yeah you would they be able to collect about an omer which i guess is about 3.6 liters mm. i don't okay. know what it is in american it's about three, 3.6 american liters yeah that's how it would be in america and so like yeah the idea is that if you'd go out to gather it it would just be all over the ground when you got up in the morning and they don't know where it came from. So you'd go out to gather it in like a big basket or whatever. And no matter how much work you did, you'd get just enough to feed yourself and your family. And so in the Talmud, which is sort of the one of the holy books for uh, for Jews, that manna would be found closer to homes of people who had stronger faith and further away from those who had doubts. And that also uh, Gentiles, i.e. non-Jews, would actually not be able to touch it. It was like intangible. So it would like fall through their hands if they try to touch it. That's interesting. Yeah. And this led to like this interesting little side thing where Gentiles who wanted to try manna the only way they could is by getting animals to eat the manna and then eating the animals that ate the manna and the manna flavor would get into the animals and that was like their way of doing it they're pre-seasoning with manna Mm -hmm. that's (laughs) you couldn't get someone to spoon feed it to you i guess not i guess they didn't 
think of that. Maybe they didn't have spoons. I don't know. Who knows? When were spoons invented? Sorry. Yeah, so according to Exodus, that the first week that manna appeared, uh, what would happen is, is that on the day before the Sabbath, every week, that double the amount of manna would drop and that you would collect enough so that you could eat during the Sabbath so that there was no going out and collecting manna during the Sabbath because you're not supposed to do labors on that day. Oh, okay. Interesting. But on every other day, uh, if you left the manna overnight, it would become infested with maggots. So it goes, yeah, it goes bad pretty quickly. Wait, could they not eat the maggots? Maggots are good for you. I... Would you want to? I Bear Grylls does all the time. That's his favorite food. Fair. And he's a, he's good at surviving. Well, I mean, if we go by the standards of what Bear Grylls eats. Um, yeah. <laughs> Bear Grylls is like, oh, maggots? This is like steak to me. Listen, it's not my own urine, so it's fine. <laughs> this is actually a good day. Uh, okay, so there was that. And then like looking through like all the things about the way that the Bible writes about manna, we already see some stuff that kind of shows that the idea that it came from a machine has some issues. So first of all, manna as a direct translation literally means what is it? Because the idea of Hmm. it being weird and kind of ephemeral is super important to its identity. Yeah. And I will say that I'm just speculating here, but I think ancient uh, Jews probably have seen algae before. Okay. So they would have had a name for it other than what is, what is it? Yeah. Cause like, you know, they work near the Nile river in the story of Exodus, of course. Famously. So, and uh, the Nile does have algae in it. As far as I know, I'm not a Scientologist or anything like that, but I'm pretty sure that, uh, that that's, that's a thing. I don't know if Scientology was quite the what word you were looking for. Sorry. Sorry, sorry, a scientician. There um, you go. That's the word. Yeah. The other thing, too, is that there's no mention of it coming out of a machine. There's mention of it falling from the sky. Okay. Like, after the dew lifted in the morning, they would find it scattered around the ground. You don't line up in front of, like, a, you know, a bucket to get your mana for the day. Exactly. And uh, to kind of go to your point about it not having a strong description, the description of mana in Exodus 16.13 describes it as a, quote, small round thing like a pancake yeah like a silver dollar pancake so if a machine was going to be emitting all of this mana though it probably like their delivery method probably wouldn't have been let's just scatter it all over the ground and get people to pick it up for themselves maybe it was oh maybe it was just really bad at flipping the pancakes you know what i mean hear me out hold on i've i've cracked this theory even further i'm just imagining like yeshua like lining up to get his (laughs) mana for the day and it's like you can see it like flipping the thing and just puts it out and then just drops on the ground like like some sort of like robotic dick move like (laughs) pick it up (laughs) hear me out hold on hear me out okay so you you had described it earlier as as kind of being pale in color or or even white so like here's what happens you you have a machine that makes pancakes and it does the first side pretty good and then you have to flip it because the 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 other side is pale you know you need to get it all brown so you flip it oops oops Flew flew away from me. Landed on the ground. Good sign. It it was gooey side up. So that means that it's still pale in color and it's still round things from this pancake flipping machine. I've cracked the code. And I think that also means that it's the ancient Jews who invented the five second rule. (laughs) That is a part. No one talks about this, that part of the theory, but you're absolutely right. That is a part of it. Uh, The other thing too is that uh, Exodus also mentions that 
mana melts in the sun. And as far as I could tell uh, by doing research, algae does not melt in the sun. Mm. In fact, it usually grows in the sun because algae is um, what we like to call in the scientific vernacular a plant. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Plants do like photosynthesis. And even if you were, you know, doing like roasted, uh, like part of the mana machine theory is that this is like roasted algae. But even if it was roasted algae, it would still not dissolve in sunlight. That doesn't seem to make a lot lot of sense. Well, you know what is melty and gooey is the gooey side of a pancake, so... Go, I'm just what, saying this pancake theory it, is uh you're, it all fits so Moses does warn that to not store the mana up that those who found it stank and had worms except on the Sabbath and it's doubtful that a mana machine would make two different types of mana one for the day before the Sabbath and one for every other day it's so like they're making two varieties the one that lasts two days and the one that lasts one day so if a machine made mana what it produced would either be a worm attracting mana that only lasts one day or the two day mana and so it just it, 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 again it's just like why not make the two day mana every day if that's the case that is true the other thing is that in the book um, in the Bible mana is described as taste like honey okay but okay. uh and okay. so what happens is that sassoon and dale speculate that it's roasted in some capacity the algae was roasted and that would give it its honey flavor honey roasted algae now this is evidenced by nothing by pure <laughs> speculation but i will tell you that um we do eat algae it's called seaweed and it is delicious when you roast it it is but i would not describe the flavor of roasted seaweed as honey like in nature it is not actually we buy regularly a whole bunch of roasted seaweed as a snack that we eat and it's incredibly delicious and it tastes not of honey but instead it tastes like seaweed as you would expect yeah like a salty oceany taste i have done that science experiment at home and can confirm it does not taste like honey and it's also described as looking like coriander seeds white coriander seeds oh okay that small yeah i guess so like all clumped together okay fair enough all right and also is described as having like a sort of dark or a, a color like something called bedellium bedellium yeah so it's supposed to have the same color as bedellium which is sort of this ranges between like white and orange and like kind of like a dark brown color it's like a resin oh that's kind of beautiful so it looks like that it tastes like honey neither of these sound like something that would be algae because algae is green yes not white or orange well i don't know are there different kinds of algae i'm not a scientician yeah so this is so that's there's all of that. So that's that's all the that's all the stuff that's like just looking at the Bible. But then when you look at the origins of the mana machine and like where their sourcing comes from, it actually doesn't come from the Torah or the Bible at all. It comes from another book that they read and they analyzed deeply for their study, a book called the Zohar. Okay, I have not heard of this. Please explain. Uh, The Zohar is the main text of something called the Kabbalah, which is a term for a certain strain of Jewish esoteric mysticism. Okay. So essentially, the Zohar is a book written by some sort of more mystical esoteric rabbis who are trying to find deeper meanings in the Bible by like looking at symbolism and meanings of changing letters around, things like that, in order to try and find some sort of like extra things about the universe. It has its critics. Uh, specifically, there's a lot of disputes about where its origins are. But uh, an important thing to mention about the Zohar when it comes to 
its claims about things that happen in the book of Exodus is that the book is a commentary on the Torah with an emphasis on more mystical interpretations of the text. While if you're a Jew, uh, the Torah is supposed to be a directly written book by Moses dictated by God. Yeah. Okay. So a little more authority on that one. Mm -hmm. There's also a bit of a time difference. Uh, The Zohar was written Pro- the first evidence we have of the Zohar comes in about the 1200s, but there are some people who claim that it comes from the second or third century AD, which, you know, this is all very like, you know, disputed and all that kind of things. But the first actual evidence version of a Zohar existing is uh, in the 1200s, which is about... 1600 to 2800 years after Exodus. I was going to say that feels a bit young (laughs) compared to the Exodus. Just a bit. So uh, yeah, about a millennium or two or close to three might have passed between the two events. Okay. So maybe, I don't know, maybe not as accurate. Didn't feel like it was right there. You know, Mm -hmm. didn't feel like it was right there alongside him. So there's a there's a bunch of ways that you could probably look at, like, why would this be something that you could go on? Like, what knowledge did the writers of the Zohar have that the people who wrote the Torah would not? And, you know, what what could what justification they have for just inserting these new interpretations? And this is even if the people who wrote the Zohar even do suggest that there was a machine. But uh, the other thing, too, is like it could have been an oral tradition, although it's fairly unlikely because we probably would have known about it. And we have a lot of records of Jewish people writing down, you know, stories and stuff about their culture, very literate culture with a very high emphasis on the written word. So there's not a lot of stuff that doesn't get, there's a lot, not a lot of stuff that's not written down. Right. I know what that's like. Leave everything on the table, cut nothing out. All context, no content. That's right. And, and also the, the other thing too, is that if they did use a oral tradition to inform the Zohar, you're talking about almost 3000 years of telephone kind of between the two. Unless they very specifically memorize memorized the you know the story word for word it would be akin to somebody writing an esoteric commentary today on the american constitution and the revolution no actually not even today it would be as if somebody in the year 6000 wrote uh (laughs) some commentaries on the american revolution and the constitution and then a few hundred years after that using that commentary to prove that the constitution was proof of alien intervention in the american revolution (laughs) yeah <laughs> it's a bit of a complicated world we've stepped into, but I think you're I think you're right. It it does feel extremely removed when you put it in that perspective. Yeah, because like when we think of the past, like it's easy to think of events that are, you know, one thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, what does it matter? But like yeah. uh Exodus was a very, very long time ago. <laughs> extremely long time ago. I know about things that are old because I'm almost 30. <laughs> I'm I'm like struggling with that in my daily life as I approach that number. So I'm basically ancient. I'm basically as old as the Exodus. So trust me, I was there. As someone who's going to be 33 in November, um, I don't know how to feel about this entire line of talk Um, right now. What I mean to say is 33 specifically is the new uh, 26. There we go. So not only uh, do we have some issues with the fact that there's a lot of issues with using the Zohar as a source to talk about factual events that would have happened during the time of Exodus, Mm -hmm. but uh, then we also get into the process in which these authors looked at the Zohar and translated and, and made their interpretations to build the man and machine theory. Okay. Because it's it's basically every all the evidence comes from this book. And um one review of the book when discussing the way that they looked at the like linguistic analysis 
claimed that their um, work was, quote, uncluttered by peripheral verbiage, which uh, <laughs> is a nice way of saying that they took words out of context. <laughs> <laughs> That's what a, what a way to phrase it. Yeah. That's incredible. So, like, for example, one uh, case where they are uh, decoding words, they find, and by the way, for everybody, anybody, all the Aramaic speakers in the in the, in the podcast listening audience, mm-hmm. I already apologize about every pronunciation I'm going to be saying now. But uh, there is a word in Daniel that goes by the name of Galgololi, which refers to his wheels. But in the Zohar, the word for skull is Galgalohi. It looks like it is only off by one letter. Yeah. So the difference between a skull and a wheel is only one letter. That makes that Daniel's not is talking about wheels and not skulls. And so he's having a vision. And so like this is an example. Like that's like that's going to be the secret knowledge. Kingdom of the crystal wheels. Yeah. So they were literally like if they're going by the Zohar, was the Zohar doing this? And if so, are they not just changing the meanings of words by changing letters out? And so then does that mean that you can approach the Bible by just saying anytime the word wheel happens, you can replace it with skull? Boy, that seems like it would be real confusing. Yeah. And also decoding text this way is uh, not a common practice done by serious academics, because as far as I could tell, nobody does this except for these guys. It's going to catch on. They're starting a trend. Everyone's <laughs> going to be doing it soon. No, that is very weird. I don't it's it feels like trying to be like, I have an interpretation and it only works if I change one word to a completely different word, but I bet I could justify doing that in a weird roundabout way Mm -hmm. to make myself seem like I'm right. Yeah. And also it doesn't look at things like maybe why the Aramaic word for wheel might be one letter off from the word for skull, maybe because they both come from the same root word, which is galal, which means to roll. I getcha. They're not taking into account account their stems. We all took stems in middle school. So I would say that as an example of their methodology, there might be a problem in that they're using one verse from the book of Daniel in a source that's not the Bible to demonstrate a point about an extended period of time elsewhere in the actual Bible, Mm -hmm. which is not exactly a lot of evidence that I'm going to feel like I can trust or have a lot of faith in their particular methodology yeah all right okay i the the cracks are starting to show a little bit here as much as i hate to admit it Mm -hmm. and keep in mind that the zohar is not a retelling of these it is in fact a commentary on the torah so it's writing oh it's a video essay yeah basically yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. it's a video essay about the torah cool cool, cool. so that's so that's that, that shows a lot of problems but that is also just you know pointing out maybe issues with the methodology that they use to approach this mana machine theory but this is this is the fun this is the fun one and that is let's just say that the mana machine is real okay i've been saying that <laughs> so let's talk about maybe some of the logistical issues that might show up with a mana machine that would make it uh-huh. not exactly a feasible thing to work the first of all so there's three major things one that it took moisture out of the air okay that it used moisture to make a uh, hypothetical algae culture to grow and it used either a light or a heat source to do so and that three it could feed a nation of people for 40 years (laughs) so let's first talk about water can i just say i my favorite part of every podcast is when you talk logistics like (laughs) genuine genuinely that's not that's not me being sarcastic that's like this is my this is the stuff that i live for (laughs) we're bringing logistics to ancient aliens theories. Yes, let's do this. Let's go. So have you ever, have you heard of the Sinai Peninsula? Yes. Have you heard of deserts? 
No, actually. They sound quite wet. Yeah. Is that right? Uh, well, close. It's actually the opposite of that. Gotcha. Uh, the Sinai Peninsula, uh, which is probably the most likely place where this wandering the desert happened, is in fact a desert. Mm. Now, in Exodus, there is some mentions of dew being related to manna, but it's not reasonable to assume that this dew would be enough moisture to grow cultures of algae large enough to provide sustenance for a nation of people. I don't know much about algae growth or water, but it's pretty difficult to say that a region that gets less than four inches of rain a year is going to have enough water to grow algae to feed a country. Seems unlikely. (laughs) Yeah. Now, algae is a very resilient plant, but water's kind of important. I just took it. I took a sip of one a couple seconds ago. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it would be quite miraculous if they could harvest enough water from morning dew to grow uh, the vast amount of algae that would be needed to make manna. Well, they were walking around in the desert, right? So they were sweating. Is that water? Can we use that? If they had a still suit to collect it, maybe. (laughs) Gross. Um, The other thing, too, is that a mana machine would need light and heat because plants also like light. Okay, well, hold on. You you can't get me with this one because the desert for sure has light and heat. This is true, but uh, according to the mana machine, it was fueled by a nuclear reactor, and that's what provided the heat to make the algae grow. Okay. Uh, Now, I will tell you another fact about algae, and that is... Algae is not Godzilla or the Incredible Hulk. So Okay, it is green though. Yes, but um, algae would, like many living things, when exposed to a nuclear reactor, die. Mm. <laughs> because radiation mm-hmm. is bad. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have heard that before. But there is an alternate theory that instead of being close to the like the nuclear reactor just heating the algae to get make it warm, there's a theory that the nuclear power made a laser that would cause the algae to grow, which is actually scientifically viable. I actually had to look this up to see if you could use a laser to grow plants. That's right. It is viable, baby. The mana machine lives on. So apparently, like maybe like uh, about 15, 16 years ago, there were scientists who were looking at ways to uh, more efficiently grow plants. And there was one scientist who was doing an experiment to try and make a laser that could uh, very efficiently uh, give light to algae so that you could grow it sort of like to develop vertical farm technology. Yes. Uh, Today, we don't pursue that as much because we have found that uh, we have hyper efficient LEDs that are going to take over that job of the sun. Oh, okay. Even cooler. Gamer, gamer plants. I like it. And algae is indeed edible. I mean, you were just talking about how you eat uh, roasted seaweed. It's delicious. I snack on it all the time. You can't have sushi without it. So it is plausible that they could grow algae in a machine that is dark that has a laser and with water you would need sugar which is not something that they had in abundance at that point that is can tristan that is the first thing you've said that has put a hole into my pancake theory because you need flour you I, <laughs> you need that well i guess you don't need sugar in a pancake do you maybe not well, that's basically maybe what I flour misspoke. is right yeah i guess so all right so then the last issue that comes up is the problem of uh scalability so uh i don't know if you know but a nation is a lot of people and according to the bible and like people who have like looked there's as many as like two million Israelites who wandered the desert for 40 years, each of them needing three meals a day for 40 years. Mm. And in 
all of the depictions of the man and machine, it had to be small enough that a man could carry it or because they were wandering at the very least had to be able to be put on a cart and pulled by an animal. Yes. Yeah. And those carts had skulls on them. Yes. Four skulls. And then there's even like, you know, some people think that it was even carried inside the Ark of the Covenant. So like every depiction of the mana machine involves it being portable. You got to eat on the go. Yeah. So the idea that a machine that a cart could hold could provide enough food to provide two million people with Mm -hmm. three meals a day starts to feel like uh, a fairly hard sell. Mm, Yeah, I I agree with you. Do you think that they, uh, after eating the same thing for 40 years, do you think they'd just kind of be like, I don't know. I'm not feeling the mana today. Man, I get, like, can I get some sriracha for this mana or something. Can I? I don't know. Maybe I'll try one of the little maggots this time oh, that is on the old sriracha. And then they're just like, Bear Grylls, please stop. <laughs> please stop. <laughs> Who let Bear Grylls in again? <laughs> now, there's the ultimate test if Bear Grylls wants to live in the Sinai Desert for 40 years. And, uh, <laughs> for 40 years. See if you can do it. Bear Grylls, if you have an extra 40 years in you, please put this to the test. Mm-hmm. So I found a wonderful website that tried to show. Uh, how much water like just to get you an idea of like what what kind of numbers we're talking about here mm-hmm. so the idea that you could that something I could fit in a cart running continuously uh, in a dry climate could produce enough matter to feed people uh, and and also that's three meals a day six meals if it's the Sabbath, the day before the Sabbath. Uh, so somebody showed that like, if you have like a 21 liter or 5.5 gallon American dehumidifier running 24 seven in the summer mm-hmm. when it's like, you know, higher humidity, like where it's like, like 75 to 90% humidity takes about 12 hours to fill up. So to get about 5.5 gallons of water out of 75 to 90% humidity okay. takes between eight and 12 hours to fill up. So knowing this, Imagine trying to pull enough moisture to grow algae for 600,000 to 2 million people from desert air that has about 20% humidity. Oh, no, that's significantly lower. <laughs> and also imagine this machine can somehow fit in the Ark of the Covenant, which is has its dimensions outlined in the Torah and is not especially big. Mm, okay, all right. And so without any more information, such as like the amount of algae produced uh, and the food needed by a traveling group of 2 million, it falls into absurdity to believe that a man machine fed all of Israel for a single meal, let alone 40 years. Yeah, that's... That's pretty rough. Do you think they just, do you think it was, they survived off of algae and then also just had a lot of leftovers they brought from home? Possibly. They hummus and pita, which, you know, I could, I could live off of hummus and pita for 40 I could, years. Honestly, get the algae out of here. I could live off of some hummus <laughs> for, for 40 years. Yes, please. All right, Tristan, here's the thing. I think I don't want to admit it because I like this man and machine idea. And I definitely like the idea of it flipping uncooked pancakes at people. That makes me giggle every time I say it out loud. But I don't know, maybe maybe it didn't really happen that way. Like, I know that there's a lot of people who want to find explanations for this. And I make it very explicit in my uh, you know output that I don't want to be a jerk to people's religious faiths and such. Yeah. The book of Exodus has in it a parting of an entire sea and a fire tornado and plagues that I think that surviving off of manna from heaven is not, a, if, if you're, you know, if this is part of your belief system, this is not the most incredible part part of Exodus to, uh, to, to worry about, I guess I would say. Yeah. It, it feels like if, 
if all of that other stuff clicks for you, you're probably not super worried about how the mana got there or what it's made of. <laughs> and we talked about this in our little bit in our episode with uh, Andrew Mark Henry about how there's this strange like biblical literalism, but also make it science in this very peculiar way that yeah. is hard to uh, we're kind of dancing around. And I really want to figure out whenever we like touch this kind of religious stuff. Yeah, it's definitely really interesting. I think, you know, I like a lot of uh, I'm all for conspiracy theories that don't cause any sort of like harm you know this theory of the mana machine kind of hits that line a little bit for me where if you are religious or not and you want to believe in this idea of a technological uh, mana machine like I don't know I don't maybe I'm wrong here and maybe you can you know put me in my place but that just seems like a fun thing it doesn't feel like it's actively harming anybody to be like yes and and the mana was actually algae Mm -hmm. obviously you, you rob yourself of all the other historical context that we've talked about but otherwise it feels like one of the least harmful things that we've talked about on this podcast so far yeah yeah it's it's just pure fun there was no like you know dark edge to it but uh but yeah like uh just like looking at it myself like they use a dubious source Mm -hmm. they took a lot of liberties with their translation of that source Mm -hmm. and then uh used it to suggest that there was some machine that could draw moisture from desert air and from desert air grow enough algae to feed a place that is uh, almost the population of Toronto with a double portion on the Sabbath for 40 years, which um, I don't know about you, but to me feels like a little bit of a stretch. Feels a little like a flop, as in a pancake flop. Thanks for listening, everybody, to our <laughs> podcast. It's probably not flapjacks. It's probably not flapjacks. You can follow us on Twitter at probs not aliens. Uh, please do so. Uh, you can follow me. <laughs> me. My antics? Well, you know you can get those over at uh, NerdSync on the YouTubes.com. Just search for NerdSync, N-E-R-D-S-Y-N-C. I make videos about nerdy things. It's a fun time. Tristan, where can people find you? Uh, you can go to Step Back, which is now verified, so it has a little check mark by its name. That's so, so exciting. Look for the Step Back with the check mark, and you found my place. Fantastic. And hey, everyone, I know we leaned really hard into the four-star reviews for the last dozen episodes, but I'm immediately regretting that. So if you just want to leave us reviews, honestly, just leave us your honest reviews, and maybe that does mean we're a four-star podcast, but maybe it means we're a five-star podcast. I don't know. Uh, leave those reviews on iTunes or wherever. It really does help us out. We are still uh, quite a new podcast and along with that tell your friends about us we would love for people to learn that we exist and learn some fun history with us every every week and it's just i don't know i'm having a lot of fun with this show and i hope you are too and i hope you tell your friends about it because you want them to have a good time and we'll be back next time because the truth is out there Pro- probably probably